Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press the international publisher of books by women. Welcome to the Virago podcast. Uh, my name is Lenny Goodings, and I have the great pleasure of being Sandy Toxfig's editor. And in this episode, we meet Sandy Toxfig. She's well known for her television and radio work as a broadcaster, writer, activist, comic on stage, screen and radio. She also writes for theater and television. She has adapted the book. She has written the play, Mamma Mia, The Party, for stage, and Christmas at the Snow Globe for the Globe Theater. In 2016, Sandy took over as chair on QI, and in 2017, she started presenting The Great British Bake Off. Sandy joins us today to talk about her brilliant memoir, Between the Stops, The View of My Life, from the top of the number 12 bus. Welcome, Sandy. Well, I think you shouldn't start by lying straight away there. You lied because you said you're my editor, but you're my friend. Oh, I am. Which order should we put it? I'll put friend and editor then. Yeah, let's do it that way. <laughs> friend, editor, and book. Yeah, you've had to be my friend just to drag books out of me. <laughs> that's true. That's <laughs> so I love this book. Oh, I will return that compliment. You're lovely. And what I especially love about it is that it's a memoir, but it's it doesn't start with I was born in, my grandparents were, blah, blah, blah. And you say in the preface, so this is a memoir, but it isn't like the one most people write. And that's for sure. <laughs> so tell us about the shape of the book and kind of where you got the idea to tell us your story from the top of the number 12 bus. Um, well, I'm obsessed with history and I'm obsessed with travel. And I would love, if I could do nothing else in my life, to take a year off and just go traveling. I think it would be amazing. But, you know, when you get to a certain age and you have children, you have grandchildren, you have responsibilities, and then you have work, and you can't do that. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just do it in my own way. And particularly in the UK, but it's probably true in any country in the world, I believe if you just get on any bus, any local provided bus service, and look out and get off at unexpected stops, you will find something interesting. So it started with that. And then what happens when anybody travels? We all do that. We sit on the bus or the train or in the car. Bits of our life flash before us and we think, oh, that's reminded me of that time I whatever. Uh, So I've written it in a way as if you're traveling on the bus with me. And stories that might occur 
if we had shared a double seat at the top of the number 12 bus uh, travelling through London. This happened to be a bus um, that went from one place I liked to go to to another place I needed to go to. So it was uh, the library near where I was currently living uh, and the bus went seven and a half miles through London to the BBC. So it kind of worked out for me that I kept having to take this bus. And you call yourself a reluctant memoirist. Yes. Now, why is that? Well, it's something terribly narcissistic about going, oh, look at my life, it's so very interesting. Oh, no, wait, I think you'll find I have another anecdote about that. Um, so I, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not a person who looks back, I'm a person who looks forward. Um, and uh, I don't want to have reached my anecdotage just yet. Uh, I'm 61, but I'm... Uh, I'm really just beginning of the things that I'd like to do. Um, so it was reluctant, um, but nevertheless, there are stories of things that have had an extraordinary life. Um, and there are things which maybe other people haven't done. I had the chance to canoe across Africa. That's unusual. Um, I remember um, my good friend John McCarthy and I were filming. We sailed around Britain on an old sailing boat for the BBC. And as part of it, they got us to paint the outside of a lighthouse. So we were uh, strapped to a a bench on the you know, sort of plank on the outside of the lighthouse, at the very top of the lighthouse and we were painting. And John said to me, I bet this is the first time you've done this. And I went, well, actually, it's the second time. This, my life is so strange. I, I was actually in the second incarnation as a as a lighthouse painter because I'd also done it on a previous documentary. So um, uh, if you have stories, maybe maybe the world needs stories. Maybe it's good to tell some. And you tell that story in the book, which yeah. is very funny. And, and tell us about your how you originally met John McCarthy, uh, which so, is also in the book. Uh, my, uh, my brother went to Hull University. I went to Cambridge uh, University. And uh, my brother's best friend at Hull was uh, a young man called John McCarthy. Um, and uh, my brother Nick was due to come and uh, collect me one day from university and take me home. And he turned up very late, very drunk, with his friend John. It wasn't a good first impression. <laughs> and I was quite cross with both of them because they'd kept me waiting for so long. But John is so like my brother, so unbearably charming that he charmed me immediately. And uh, after university, John and uh, Nick, my brother, and myself, we shared a flat at Clapham in South London. And uh, just became enormously good friends. And then, uh, for various reasons, we all got a job in a newsroom uh, writing international news for an organization called UPITN. And uh, we used to write world news stories uh, at enormous speed so that we could get to the pub more quickly. Uh, <laughs> so we provided all the international news for, for not only the ITN service in, in the UK, but services around the world. And um, John became like another brother to me. Uh, and then he wanted to go on a foreign posting, um, and he was sent out to Beirut, where unfortunately he was taken hostage, um, and was uh, kept away for many, many years. Um, but we are still friends. He's godfather to my son. Um, we have a, I like to think we have a special uh, bond. And one of his dreams of freedom when he was in captivity was to stand at the prow of an old sailing ship and see his beloved country from the sea. This was going to be marvellous. So the BBC decided they'd make this into a documentary. So John and I set sail, very old sailing boat. We were going to be three months at sea. The first week, I was so sick. I don't think I've ever been so sick in my whole life. Um, there's a thing sailors say, which is that seasickness comes in two stages. In the first stage, you think you're going to die. And in the second stage, you're very afraid you're not going to. So it's a really 
horrible thing. Anyway, after a week, and I suddenly was beginning to feel a little bit better. And I was standing at the prow of the ship, and it was pitching up and down. It was a very, very old ship, made a terrible creaking noise. And John came up to me, and he put his arm around me, and he said, you know that dream I had when I was in captivity? And I thought, this is it. This is it. He's going to make it worthwhile that I've been so sick. He said, I think I was wrong. <laughs> and I thought, well, they didn't kill you while you were out there, but I'm going to. I am going to kill you because you put me through. We still had another nearly three months ahead of us. Um, but he's a, he's a wonderful human being. He's uh, one of the nicest people I know. I think the book shows you have a real gift for friendship yourself. Well, I, I think it's the thing that sustains us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Isn't it? It's the, I think of it as the family we choose mm. rather than the one we're given. Uh, so I'm not saying I don't love some of, some of the family that have been given, mm. some less keen. Um, but uh, particularly as you get older, if you have had friendships for a very long time, I've had friendships uh, now for more than 40 years, some of them, mm. um, and they're very sustaining because you see each other through breakups, you see each other through new loves, old loves, divorces, mm. all kinds of things. Mm. Um, and also an old friendship means that they look at you and they remember you before you were a mother, before you were a grandmother, before you were, um, I don't know, in the public eye or any of those things. And they know you so well. Um, so I value my friendships. But what I'm, I'm always learning, but what I really am learning lately is how much time you need to devote to it. It's not something that you can imagine. It's just going to tick along. Mm. You actually need to to call up your friend and go, hi, I'm just doing that friend thing and seeing how you are. But So that's an interesting aspect of the book too because I think the book is very much, of course, it's full of wonderful anecdotes and it's full of humor, as one would hope and expect. Um, but it's also, feel, I felt, very inspiring. And one of the things I felt it it says to us is get off your telephone. Yeah. Or use your telephone to, you know, make your connection with people who, who you care about rather than just scrolling through things. Yeah, and make but a personal to connection. Look out. Yeah, to look up and to look out. Um, so I spend a lot of time on television. Um, and for reasons I'm never entirely clear, people want to come up and talk to you because they've seen you on the television. I think they think they know you. Mm. Um, and what it does, it slightly restricts your life because... My wife and I, if we go out to a restaurant now, and this is, I, I, it's very hard because I don't want to boast in any I'm not trying to say, God, look at me, I'm so famous. The shows I'm on are very famous. So so we go to a restaurant, and we had a guy come over. We were having a nice, quiet meal. He said, what are you two ladies doing on your own? And I just thought, okay, so first of all, we're not on our uh, – we're to get together. We're not – on our own and uh, the, the idea that I was in a restaurant seemed baffling to him because uh, shouldn't you be on the television no see that's th- th- my job and that's I'm just having a night out uh, right now um, what I discovered about the about the bus is because everybody faces forward because everybody's on their phones I was able to be anonymous nobody was expecting me on the bus and nobody spoke hardly anybody spoke to me uh, I travelled on the bus, I think, for over a three-year period. Um, and I, I maybe spoke to one person in the three years that I was travelling backwards and forwards on the bus. So I absolutely loved it. I thought it was uh, fantastic. But I was slightly horrified by the number of people who, most people actually, never looked up from their phones one time. And any bus, anywhere in the UK, if you look out, you will find some wonderful piece of history. Or you will find a little tiny food establishment that is serving some exotic something from Persia or Ecuador or somewhere that you hadn't noticed before. Or, or you will find a house of such exquisite beauty that the architecture makes you wonder where it, who had thought of it and who first came up with that idea of doing architecture like that. 
can I... I really think as a general thing we should put our phones down. I'm not saying... I'm not a... I mean, I'm a techno person. I love all technical stuff. I'm just saying maybe we stopped looking at each other. Maybe we stopped connecting. I could have had wonderful conversations with the person sitting next to me, except they would never was there a moment when I was allowed the possibility of getting in and, and saying, hi, but my name is, and who are you, and what are you up to, and where are you going? Uh, so I have a real issue. Uh, so I liked getting off the bus. Uh, I liked going and talking to people. I liked making it my business to go and see what was on the next street, the one behind the one, the main street that we were on. Um, and I think if you don't have money and you don't have a lot of time, you can still travel the world. You can. You can... Just go get on the bus at the end of your ride. So what was amazing um, in this in this bus story, <laughs> or hiding out as a memoir, um, it, you have 7.7 miles, mm. and yet it's absolutely full of history. And maybe um, tell us about, for example, the lady gangsters at Elephant and Castle. I, I especially love that one. Well, this is extra. So Elephant and Castle, there are a whole lot of things about Elephant and Castle that people think they know. So a lot of Londoners will tell you, oh, yes, it's a corruption of uh, the Infanta de Castile. And people in London couldn't say it. Aren't we hilarious about foreign words? We couldn't say it, so we called it Elephant and Castle. Not true. This is absolutely myth. It's, there's no way that that's a true story. Um, most likely, um, there might have been a forge in the area. Uh, so um, the, it's really to do with somebody who probably made swords and knives because mm. the elephant is the representation of that and the how do the, the, the seat on top of an elephant uh, looks a bit like a castle. Most likely it's a much more obscure story and has nothing to do with the Infanta de Castile. It's also the Latin American centre, heart of London, where you can get fabulous food from Colombia and Ecuador and Brazil. And, you know, if you just step out and look around, you will suddenly find yourself in Latin America. It's fabulous. Um, and uh, it's a place where once it was the centre of, uh, of female-led crime um, in Britain. Uh, so the greatest pickpockets that we're talking about at uh, end of the 19th century uh, was run by a woman called Alice Diamond. And Alice Diamond ran a group called the 40 Elephants, named not just after the area where they uh, came from, uh, but because what they would do is they would wear these very long coats uh, with enormous pockets inside. And they would go, uh, what they called, on the posh. So they'd go up to the posh shops up in Uptown, up in uh, up west in London, uh, and they would pickpocket and put it all in the pockets of these coats so that they looked enormous by the time they left the shop. So they, that's why they called themselves elephants. Um, and, you know partly good manners in those days. Nobody would dare to search a woman. Um, and so they were hugely successful. And there's some wonderful stories about these women. And Alice Diamond was a real corker. Um, and there were other fabulous women who had, um, when the first cars came out, you know, so you're talking about the 1920s, ran sort of uh, scams with these cars, with people on running boards getting away from the police. And one car had a periscope so they could see any police coming and stuff. I mean, it's a fabulous story. And and the and the home or the flat where Alice Diamond lived is called Hales Building. You can still go and stand outside and look up and think of Alice coming home with her loot and counting it all and <laughs> you know checking all she's got and seeing how much money she's made that day. And I loved to. I felt I felt connected to her. I would have liked to have met her. I think she's an extraordinary woman. Um, you have to understand at the time when she was working, uh, the choices that a lot of women had were were prostitution uh, or suicide. The, 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 because they were so poor, that part of London was so poor, and the invention of the gas oven, which was intended to make women's lives easier, 
ironically, was the thing that they used to kill themselves. So, so you're talking about a woman, uh, whatever you think about crime, and obviously not in favour, mm. she was providing a massive amount of employment to women who were supporting their children. Uh, and what did you find when you went on this on this trip? You didn't find as many women as you were hoping, were you? Oh, it's so depressing. It's so depressing. I'm such a, uh, inter- have such an interest in, uh, in women's history, um, but um, I'm probably alone uh, in many uh, regards in this. Um, so I was looking for blue plaques or statues. Um, I found a blue plaque to Una Marson. She was the first um, uh, black woman to make programmes for the BBC. Um, but I really had to search for it, and I really had to... Uh, try and track down wherever I did find it. It is just off the route for the number 12. Um, but, you know, where are the statues? Um, I, I dislike deeply the statue of Florence Nightingale um, uh, because it uh, it so shows her with her lamp uh, and the idea that she was the lady with the lamp is something that was made up entirely by a male journalist for the Times. Nobody ever called her that. Um, you want to call her the lady with the hammer. She's the lady with the hammer, yeah. Um, because she, when she arrived in Scutari to look after the men from the Crimea, she discovered that all the medicines that the men needed were being kept in a locked cabinet for officers only. And she wasn't having it. And it had a massive padlock on it. She took a hammer and she smashed the padlock and she distributed the medicines to all the soldiers, not just the officers. And the men loved her for it and they called her the lady with the hammer. I'd like to see a picture or a statue of Florence Nightingale anywhere in London holding up a hammer. I think it would be much better than the lady with the lamb. So the so streets are named after men, uh, buildings are named after men, statues are erected to men. Uh, women's history in London is is singularly hard to find. I'm thinking about you as loving history and also loving libraries. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that goes back to the story, a story you tell in the early part of the book, is when you came to, to Britain for the first time, you were 14, and you went to a boarding school. It was not a, was not a good time for you, and you described that, the loneliness that you felt at that time. Did, yeah. that, did that send you into libraries, into books? That's well, I'd always been interested in books. I come from a long line of authors. Um, uh, when I was 14, I arrived here, uh, and I had grown up in, uh, primarily in New York, I mean, all over the world, but primarily in New York, and I had a thick New York accent. And I got sent to boarding school in the UK because uh, I got thrown out of <laughs> three schools in a row. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, uh, mainly, I think, because I didn't really understand the rule that you had to be there every day. It seemed very boring to me. Uh, so I played a lot of what the Americans call hooky. Uh, anyway, I got caught and I uh, got sent to boarding school. And uh, the first day that I arrived, um, uh, I met Matron. And I said, hi, I'm Sandy. And she said, I'm Matron. I said, oh, what is that like your first name, your last name? How does that work? Uh, and uh, she hated me. Uh, and the girls, you know, how lovely girls can be, all mass, uh, sent me somewhere I'd never heard of, which is Coventry. Uh, so they didn't speak to me for six weeks. Um, but uh, I discovered a second-hand bookshop called Thorpe's in Guildford High Street, Guildford in Surrey, where the school was. And that became my salvation. And I started to discover Hardy and Foster and Jane Austen and these wonderful friends. <laughs> um, but books were not a new solace to me. Uh, it was not at all uncommon in our house for a book to arrive written by my aunt or my dad's new book or uh, I mean I come from a long line of uh, my grandfather was a writer um, so it uh, the idea that you would find comfort and friendship in books was not a was not a revelation to me um, but it was essential uh, and um, I, I 
really struggled to make any friends at all. Um, but then in my sixth form, I was 16, uh, a friend uh, called Lorna Hudson turned up. And Lorna had the same passion for books. She's now a prof- very distinguished professor of English. She writes books I don't understand the titles of. Um, and she and I had a ridiculous and passionate a relationship with Alexander Pope. I don't think anybody ever has had that uh, before or since. Um, and we used to write each other notes in the style of Alexander Pope. And uh, just finding somebody who was on my wavelength, just finding somebody who thought words and the manipulation of words was an interesting thing to do, sustained me through the last two years of school. You have a, a funny little play, playlet. I would say I dedicated to... Uh, in, in, in the book. Yeah. Um, you've also learned... I've, I I like your story about learning from Sheila Hancock. You know, when you were a young actor, you say actor or actress. Well, I like. I don't really mind. Uh, I prefer actor. It's just a rather straightforward uh, thing. But in fact, it, the the story with Sheila Hancock, who is a, a legend in show business, predates me actually appearing on the stage. So I was very young, um, uh, and I was working uh, in the holidays between uh, university terms. So maybe I was nineteen. And uh, it was at the Victoria Palace Theatre, and it was the musical Annie, and Sheila was playing the lead, she was playing Miss Hannigan, and I didn't know her at all, she was a big star. And uh, they'd hired me because I'm small, and uh, there wasn't so much computer technology in those days, and there's a big scene uh, where all the buildings of New York uh, traverse the stage, apparently, automatically, uh, and uh, Daddy Warbucks and Annie walk along as if they're walking through the streets of New York. Well, in fact, this was done with a sort of old-fashioned uh, travelator, and uh, we couldn't turn... Nowadays, you can turn lights on and off wirelessly. That couldn't be done in those days. So each building had to be plugged in, and when it got to the other side of the stage uh, to apparently disappear, uh, it had to be unplugged and then taken off. And then, So my job was to ride on the back of the buildings and plug and unplug them. So I would get on the Chrysler building and I would go all the way across the stage. Nobody could see me. I'm hidden behind the Chrysler building. And then I would unplug it. Then I would run underneath the stage and get onto the Empire State Building. This is pretty much, this is an early foray into the excitement and glamour of show business. Um, so I, I did this rather well, I like to think. Anyway, one night I'm running below the stage and I bump into Sheila Hancock, all dressed as Miss Hannigan. Now, she's a big star. I am nobody. I am the girl behind the Chrysler building. I'm not anything. So I stopped and I went, oh, sorry, Miss Hancock, after you. And she said, no, no, Sandy, your cue is well before mine. You go ahead. And that is a show business lesson. It's actually a life lesson that has stayed with me forever. She knew my name. She knew what I did. And she knew that what I did had to come before any sense of her being a star. And I have never forgotten it. Everybody on the team is important. Everybody who has a function in that particular machinery is really vital. And also learn who people are. Learn their names. Don't just go, you know, excuse me, you, could you get me a glass of water or could you? Um, so when I and, I, and I, we're still friends. We're still friends more than 40 years later. We, we have become very close, actually. Um, but if I go into a new studio now and I'm, hosting a show the first thing I ask is that they they tape the names of the camera crew at the bottom of each camera so that I don't say camera four I say Jack would you mind whatever and the uh, same with somebody who has to get me my script or whatever but I learned that from her um, and it's really simple straightforward treating everybody nice and I don't think it matters whether you're in show business or working in 
a shop or it doesn't matter what it is just do that learn somebody's name look them in the eye I think it's not doesn't take long does it do you feel optimistic about young people yeah always always oh my goodness I think they're fabulous and I and I love to have conversations with them I was chancellor um, at Portsmouth University for five years I really enjoyed it um, I think it's uh, uh, we need to hear their voices I think it's vital um, I hope it's a two-way street I hope that they also listen to those of us who've been around and maybe learned a thing or two. Um, I don't think just being new is always the best, um, but I think we should balance things out. I think we should listen to new voices. I also think we should listen to a little bit of wisdom. So I'm not sure it's always a two-way street, um, but nothing is more energizing to me than spotting fresh young talent and seeing if I can help mentor them in a way that would have been nice for me if I could have had the same. Very sweet story in your book is when you go first go to Paris, and <laughs> and you meet an older woman yeah. in the c- cafe. Yeah, in a nice way, not like a. It wasn't like a. <laughs> just saying, it wasn't like some terrible club. I'm just saying, okay. Um, well, that also stayed with me. That, uh, so I because I went with two friends on it. Say it wasn't a gap year. We had we travelled for like four weeks on the interrail. It wasn't. Uh, people didn't really do gap years. And then we got to Paris and they wanted to go shopping. They were very excited about shopping. I hate shopping. I still hate shopping. I wanted to see Victor Hugo's house because I have geek written all the way through me. Uh, so I went by myself. So I was 18. I went to Victor Hugo's house. I was beside myself. I discovered George Sand, who I'd never heard of. It was a woman. I was beside Oh, just the soap marks. And then I had this sort of romantic notion that I would go to a cafe and I would have lunch and I would be sort of literary. Um... Anyway, I didn't have any money or sense. So I went to this cafe and I had the, they have a thing in France sometimes called the prix fixe, which is just you have you eat whatever they give you. And I don't really care what it was. It was about having food in front of me. It wasn't really about the food. So I'm sitting there and there's a, in those days, I don't know if it happened so much anymore, but in certainly in France and in Greece, and widows would dress in all black. So there's a lady all in black. And she probably as old as I am now, but she seemed ancient to me. Um, and uh, so she said to me in French, why, why do you not have wine? So my French is terrible, um, but I managed to reply and I said, I don't have any money for wine. Also, it hadn't occurred to me. I mean, I was 18. I'd been to boarding school. It, it hadn't occurred to me to have wine. But then as soon as she said it, I thought, I need wine. I need, obviously, I need wine. I'm sitting here in the shadow of Victor Hugo's house. So she orders a pichet, a little jug of wine, and we spent the lunchtime chatting in, she had no English, my French was schoolgirl French, but they had those paper tablecloths that you get sometimes in France, and I drew on the tablecloth, and we laughed, and we told stories, and I learned about her life, and, but in a very broken, we had this wonderful lunch together, I was so thrilled, I was speaking to a French woman, it was all marvellous. Anyway, then she left, and when I got up to pay the bills, she'd paid, and I ran out to find her, uh, but I never did. And I have spent the rest of my life trying to replicate that moment by being the old lady mm. who pays for somebody who's not expecting it. Mm. But I, it was generous and kind, and it was a magical, it was a magical moment. And the thing that I love from that is you don't know the magical moment mm. when it's going to happen mm. or who it's going to happen with. It might be somebody you've never met before. Mm. And if we don't look at each other, mm. if she'd been on her phone or yeah. I'd been on my phone, yeah. It wouldn't have happened. I just think, Dad, don't miss those moments. Mm. That old lady might be me now. And I want to talk to you, so mm. look up.
I know you make me um, you make me cry. The book does make me cry. Oh, sorry. I yeah, didn't mean to make you my friend. I'm not supposed to make you cry. No, you are. It's good. I, even though I hear the stories again, it makes me. Uh, it's moving. I think. Should we um, have a tiny bit of the book? Well, only because you're insisting. Don't <laughs> cry. That's fine. <laughs> Here's the thing that I always carry. I carry two things. I always have a handkerchief. There you go. And a pen knife. You don't need the pen knife right now. Not right now. No, but you can have my handkerchief. A boarding school handkerchief, pen knife, my father. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your handkerchief's now got my bits of tears. Well, that's all right. You can keep it. It's like a link between us. Okay. My children refer to them as mum's magic hankies because they have been everything. They have been, you know, bed sheets for dolls and teddy bears. They have been <laughs> binds for wounds. They have mopped up many tears. <laughs> A handkerchief, if you carry a handkerchief, I swear you'll find a dozen uses for it in the course of one day. So that one's for Lenny Gooding's tears. Right, here we go. So this is a memoir, but it isn't like the ones most people write. On the whole, when people look back at their lives, they begin with a sort of clearing of the throat before declaring, I was born in... and I don't think I have it in me to write like that. This is about some parts of my life, uh, but it's also about travelling through London on the number 12 bus, a red double-decker that meanders for just over seven and a half miles from Dulwich Library in south-east London to the BBC's broadcasting house in the centre of town. I started taking the bus because it happened to stop outside Dulwich Library, which was near where I was living and happened to head where I needed to go. I love London with a passion. The sight of a double-decker still gladdens my heart. You just know you are in London. A single shot of such a bus in a film sets the action firmly in the UK capital. I have spent a wonderful time catching the number 12. As I travelled, I have realised a few things. That hardly anyone looks out of the window and that every one of the stops along the way sparks some thought and is worth exploring. I am history mad, and here is one of the greatest cities in the world laid out before me at almost no cost. I loved what I saw from the top deck of the bus, uh, preferably the right-hand seat at the front. It taught me to look again at the familiar and find new pleasures. This is not a journey that begins by heading out into the wild blue, but instead starts with a walk under a grey sky to a bus stop. The chapters consist of thoughts that occurred to me as I travelled and about places that appealed to me as I stared out the window. It's not as if all my life flashed before me, but much has resurfaced. The solace of books, the love of my dear departed father, and how I ended up at 60 years old riding a double-decker bus. If none of these things appeal to you, may I gently suggest that you change seats now. Life is too short to read a book that upsets you. On the other hand, if you're ready, let's get going. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sandy, I want to know, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a book by a woman called Judith Shalansky. It's called Atlas of Remote Islands, 50 Islands I Have Not Visited and Never Will. And it's one of those books that you just feel excited every time you pick it up because it's about tiny little places where people are living and having, you know, their uh, everyday busy and extraordinary lives and you've never heard of them mostly. Uh, and they're so remote, they would be almost impossible to get to. You would have to sail a proper yacht to get there. And the reason I like it is because I was in Santorini in Greece and I was in this tiny little town. Turns out this tiny little town has a very small English bookshop and I went in, I wasn't looking for a book, I wasn't planning to buy anything, and I said to the woman, of all the books you've got in at the moment, what's the one you're really enjoying? And she said, this one, and it was about the islands, and I went, I'm on an island, I'm going to buy this book. So it's like a serendipitous, glorious thing that it's come into my life, because I get sent a lot of books, which is lovely, but this one drifted in on a, on a turquoise sea, as it were, <laughs> and I love it for that reason. And would you be able to tell us which author inspires you or which authors? Um, I, I don't know that it's always uh, authors that inspire me. It's stories that inspire me. And I think quite often uh, it's a story that a woman will tell me that I think is never going to be written down about her life. Uh, and I think they're still legitimate the stories, even though they're not bound and pressed and printed. And I think we should go and seek more of those stories. Thank you, Sandy Toxpick. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.